I'm Judy Cooper. I'm coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt. And uh, we're delighted to see all of you here this evening. Our guest speaker is Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald. She's an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Johns Hopkins University and a colleague of Lester Spence. So welcome, Katrina. Thank you very much for that. And good evening, everyone. Nice to have you all out in this beautiful setting, the Poe Room. I'm here tonight, uh, obviously, to partake in the discussion. But at the moment, I'm concentrated on introducing to you a very dear colleague and friend, Dr. Lester Spence. Uh, I'm sure you're here tonight in part because you studied him a bit to know what he can deliver. And so I will just say that I had the pleasure of uh, watching Dr. Spence come to the Hopkins community and enliven it with his, uh, his wonderful presence and his intellect. Uh, prior to him coming to Hopkins, he was at Washington University and had uh, gotten both of uh, his degrees, undergraduate and graduate degrees, PhD, from the University of Michigan. He's from Detroit, and that's probably what he wants you to know most, because he's a, a very dear uh, uh, friend to the city of Detroit. So he currently holds the position of Assistant Professor of Political Science and Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins. He specializes in black politics, racial politics, urban politics, public opinion, and American political thought, and um, is particularly interested, as so many of us in the academy who are of darker hue are, in the, in the issue of inequality. Um, there are a number of highlights um, to his um, life and career, most of which I haven't gotten to know yet, because he likes to keep things to himself. But a little birdie has reminded me that he has held a Kellogg National uh, Fellowship, which is a prestigious um, fellowship given to those with great promise in leadership and in um, and lots of uh, uh, attention to the, uh, the worth of their work in their um, chosen fields. So we're very happy to know that he was among those prestigious people. Um, Lester likes a lot of things. And he does a lot of things well. And tonight, it's probably most important that he puts a lot of his um, intellectual emphasis on the issue, again, of black politics. And so he has delved uh, many times into questions of Martin Luther King's image and worth, as well as Barack Obama's. Um, and again, the city of Detroit as a subject matter is also something he deals with, as well as things like the digital divide, something that we've you know, debated hotly over the years as our technological society advances. Um, so tonight, um, we get to hear about his recent publication um, that is available, obviously, uh, through the normal venues. The book is entitled Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip-Hop and Black Politics. And uh, the book covers uh, an array of issues directly related to hip-hop and what it has meant for the black community and what it means for the future of black people. Um, ideas about politics and about candidates are embedded within this discussion, as is often his subject. Um, but most importantly, the production, the circulation, and consumption of hip-hop music. So tonight, we are graced, again, by his presence. He will go in 
to the detail um, that he deems necessary about his book, I'm proud to call on my colleague and friend, Dr. Lester Spence. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction, uh, Katrina. Thank you very much. Um, I actually don't get a, a chance often to speak in public, so although I, I, I do the radio thing, I, I do work with uh, Dan Rogers, and particularly Mark Steiner, uh, once a month, but very rarely do I get a chance to speak in publics like this. So before I actually start talking about my book, I want to give a couple of um, shout outs. <laughs> um, there are a number of people who have assisted me on this journey, going all the way back from undergrad to now. Some of these people are in the audience. I want to give a shout out to probably my oldest friend in the room, Jesse Walker. Uh, he's actually been doing a, number, a great deal of journalist work. I've known him since I was, I think, 18 or 19. Uh, I see some of my fraternity brothers in Omega Psi Phi. I want to thank them. Uh, Laniel Henderson is a professor of black politics, and it's his book that actually caused me to go into the field, among others. So to the extent there are any mistakes that you hear tonight, it'll be his fault, that guy right there. And then uh, finally, I want to thank the staff of the Enoch Pratt Library. Thanks, Judy, for offering the, for making this um, opportunity available to me. That means a great deal. Um, so hip hop and black politics. <sighs> Why, on the surface, would we connect hip hop and black politics? So there is a long history, going back to the beginning of popular culture of black bodies, of black populations, using popular culture to engage in politics, right? And on the surface, the really clear reason why this is is because black people, particularly in the South, couldn't participate in formal politics until the 1960s. So to a certain extent, they use popular culture to engage in political discussions that they can't engage in formally, right? So if you think about somebody like John Coltrane, Alabama, in the, the 50s, you think about somebody like um, Billie Holiday and Strange Fruit, right? It's an attempt to talk about issues, to begin a discussion that can't be held in any other space. Um, it also represents an attempt to actually affirm and develop a black identity, right? So unlike many of my colleagues, unlike many of my ideological colleagues even, I do not subscribe to the belief that black people have a self-esteem issue. I don't subscribe to the belief that our problem is a result of the lack of unity. In part, I do not subscribe to that belief because black music and black popular culture has actually been, um, been like the stuff by which black intellectuals can create an alternative identity to that identity that's been like kind of put upon us historically through the forces of white supremacy and terrorism. Um, so that's kind of why I was interested in black popular, popular culture and its relation to politics. Now, why hip hop specifically? So there's a great deal of anxiety about the role of rap and hip hop within black politics. And as an aside, this book is not about the effect of rap and black politics on American politics writ large. It's on the degree to which rap and hip-hop hip play a role in black politics, 
right? So if we think about the difference, racial politics, you know, which I also teach, is about the degree to which scarce resources are fought over by different racial groups. And we can talk about the way that, um, that tax dollars, for example, are, uh, are, are, are appropriated in certain ways that, um, that privilege certain racial groups at the expense of others. In fact, today, I taught urban politics. And I showed the students um, this phenomenon called million-dollar blocks. How many of you are familiar with it? Raise your hand. So a million-dollar block is a block that, has, that sends a million dollars to the prison industry because there are basically, if you count the number of people who are incarcerated you, and you add that amount up, it would add up to a million dollars. In one way, you can see, particularly when you look at uh, a place like Brooklyn, where the study is, where the study's begun, but it's spreading out. You can literally see the money going from one population that's poor and predominantly black to another population, right? And it's more complex than that, but we can label that population white. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is black politics, right? Because if you look at black society, even though in a number of ways we're subjugated, even though in a number of ways we're oppressed due to white supremacy and, uh, and racism, it too looks like a pyramid. You've got black people on top who have a lot of stuff. You've got black people in the middle who have less stuff. And then you've got a whole bunch of black people on the bottom who have less stuff than that. And although part of that dynamic is shaped by racism, a lot of that stuff is shaped by internal processes. Right? It's about, about black populations fighting over scarce resources. So why is there a great deal of anxiety about rap in black politics? I'd argue that one reason is because of the figure, oh, this is being podcast and kind of tape. The figure that, that, that's name begins with an N and ends with an R, depending on how you pronounce it. Some people pronounce it, it ends with an A, and it has a couple G's in the middle, right? So there's this skit that Chris Rock does. It's um, in Bring the Pain. Um, it's his, like his comeback video. It's a comedy skit with HBO. He does it in front of a predominantly black audience in Washington, D.C. And around the 21-minute mark, he asks the audience playfully, he's like, who's more racist, black people or white people? Black people, because black people hate black people, too. And then he goes on to make a, a clear distinction between black people and this other population whose name I won't give, right? And this distinction, I believe, lies at the root of the anxiety that many people have over rap music, right? Um, but on the flip side, there are also people who grew up with rap, who grew up with hip hop, who believe that rap and hip hop actually represents the vehicle by which we can create a more perfect union, a more, at the, at the very least, a more representative union, particularly in as much as that gives people the opportunity to speak who historically haven't had that opportunity, right? So what I wanted to do was kind of deep dig into these waters and make a couple of different interventions, right? So I'm a scholar, and sometimes even though I don't play one on the radio, I, I'm actually really, really uh, well-versed in, in a series of really um, specialized methods of political inquiry. And but even though, so my challenge was that 
even as a number of scholars have begun to take hip hop and rap seriously in part because of this anxiety, right? People aren't really making, they're not testing the claims that they're making, right? So they'll make claims like, oh, rap has this type of effect on um, um, public opinion, or rap has this type of effect on black politics. And you don't, you know, these claims have gone totally untested, right? So to the extent that they're making these untested claims, they're, what they're really doing is making assertions that have the, that are either, that are potentially wrong and at the very least politically problematic. And I wanted to test those claims. The other thing I wanted to do, though, is I wanted to speak to political science. Right, as, as my friend Laniel can talk about, black, uh, political science is probably one of the most conservative social science disciplines. And even though there are now more African American scholars studying black politics and taking it seriously, in part thanks to Laniel's work, there aren't as many as we would like. Right? And people are coming up behind me and they're looking for ways to study and wrestle with these questions. So to a certain extent, it was just about writing a book so people under me can come up and say, like, wow, I can take this seriously. I know how to, um, you know, this is something that I could take seriously, something that I didn't realize it was possible to do until you wrote this book. I didn't know you could actually write a book about rap and hip hop and be taken seriously as a political scientist. So that's the other thing I wanted to do. And then the final thing, and then what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll read some passages from the book. I wanted to deal with this neoliberal term. How many of you have no idea what I say when I, or what I'm referring to when I say neoliberalism? Raise your hand, it's okay. So neoliberalism is this thing. I'll call it an ideology, it's a little bit more complex than that, but I'll call it an ideology. It's this ideology that we're all kind of living under that suggests that the form of the corporation and the ideas embodied in the market are the ideas that should drive everything, including, uh, of, of course, including business, but it should drive every other field of endeavor, right? So I'll give you a quick example. Um, in a number of school districts, I think including this one, I'm not sure, um, instead of having a, a school superintendent, we have a school CEO. Right? Now that move, that linguistic move, we don't understand as a political move, but it actually is. Because what it suggests is that the CEO, as soon as we even think of the CEO, we think of, well, not so much now because the economy is in the crapper, but before this moment, when we thought of the CEO, we thought of the CEOs being up here. Right? So even President Obama has often referred to himself as, as, a, as somebody who was hired by the American people as opposed to somebody who was voted in by the American people, right? Very clear distinction. Now, th there's a clear distinction between hiring a person for a job and electing somebody to office. But that neoliberal turn, that hiring thing becomes more important, right? Finally, I'll give the example of churches, right? So in the black church, the church that is the form of the gospel that is taking hold in, uh, more so than any other is called the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is based on one very simple idea, right? That if you're right with God, if you follow the spiritual principles of the Bible, you will be what? Wealthy, right? 
And there's a whole bunch of market stuff attached to that dynamic, right? So when I talk about the neoliberal turn, I'm talking about the turn towards this market logic in every field of our life. And again, because black people, black people uh, in a number of ways, black people are just like our um, white counterparts. We live in the same space. We're influenced by the same ideas and ideologies. What I was interested in is the degree to which we see this turn reflected in black politics, in black popular culture in this case. So that's why I wrote the book. What I'm going to do, because although I like heat, it's kind of hot, <laughs> what I'm going to do is read a few different passages, not necessarily from, you know, what I do in the book is talk about the production of hip, the, um, the, hip, uh, the politics of hip hop's production, focusing on the lyrics, the consumption, doing straightforward political attitude stuff, looking at how listening to rap and how being exposed to rap videos affects one's attitudes, and in circulation. That is, how do the ideas that are supposedly present in rap, how are those ideas used by political officials, political activists, to try to change or build, uh, to, to either change, develop, or sustain a certain type of political power. Right. Because of time, uh, because of time constraints, and I, again, I, I, I'm really, really interested in beginning a, a discussion. I'm going to try to just read some passages that deal with the circulation component, dealing with a couple of uh, examples that I think you should be familiar with. So I'm going to start at the end by dealing with um, President Obama. Um, I'm going to talk about Jay-Z's uh, Dirt Off Your Shoulders. Released as the second single off of Jay-Z's The Black Album, Dirt Off Your Shoulder peaked at number five on Billboard's Hot 100. The video for the record begins with a shot of Jay-Z looking into the camera from the DJ booth in a radio station, then cuts to a scene five minutes earlier that shows Jay-Z and his posse literally taking over the station. The viewer is then transported through the microphone, into the wires, and out of a beauty salon radio to the scene of an argument between a man and a woman, then again through radio waves to a street corner as two white police officers harass young, two young Latino men. Then again to another street corner where a beautiful young black woman is harassed by several black men. The video's narrative technique is novel, but the effect is the same as the effects employed by MCs it, whom, on whom I focused earlier. It establishes the MC in an urban setting and connects him with his constituency geographically and experientially. Although Jay-Z is a millionaire several times over, the video connects Jay-Z with people experiencing everyday harassment, from women experiencing sexual harassment to men experiencing police harassment. The hook of the record, get that, dirt off your shoulders, refers to it, it doesn't read like that, I just read it like that, refers to a tactic of dealing with harassment by the physical act of brushing off one's shoulders. Eldridge Cleaver is perhaps most responsible for connecting so-called pimping to radicalism and transgression. And here we see Jay-Z doing a similar move, arguing that pimping represents a form of empowerment separate from sexism and patriarchy. In this way, we can read the record as a micro-political assertion of power and efficacy. Rather than organizing to fight police brutality or sexual harassment, individuals can assert themselves by being a pimp and brushing their shoulders off continuing their days as if nothing had happened. Now, when it became clear that Senator Barack Obama had a serious chance at becoming the country's first African-American president, one of the critiques 
white moderates and conservatives made of him was that he was an elitist and he, that he was out of touch with regular, that is, middle-class white citizens. Republicans had successfully used this rhetorical tactic against previous Democratic candidates going back before the civil rights era, referring to, to small-town Americans at a San Francisco fundraiser, Obama noted that it was understandable that these men and women would take out their frustrations on immigrants or other people not like them, and that they were cling to guns and religion. Senator Henry, Hillary Clinton, appearing in front of white working-class workers, walking on stage to John Cougar Mellencamp's small town, argued that Obama's comment revealed his elitism and his inability to connect with white working-class voters. Obama's response follows. The media likes stirring up controversy, getting us to attack each other. And I've got to say, Senator Clinton looked in her element. She was taking every opportunity to get a dig in there. That's her right to kind of twist the knife a little bit. Look, I understand that because that's the textbook Washington game. That's how our politics has been played. That's the lesson that she learned when the Republicans were doing that same thing to her back in the 1990s. So I understand it. And when you're running for the presidency, then you've got to expect it. And you've just got to kind of let it. Obama explicitly sought to bring a new politics to Washington, one that replaced symbolic, symbolic attacks with substantive debates. By placing Clinton's critique within a much broader culture of politics as usual, Obama deftly sought to categorize Clinton's comments as part of the problem with contemporary American politics and as part of the very politics against which he was attempting to fight and which he was trying to replace. But instead of articulating his response, Obama simply brushed his shoulders off using the exact same gesture that Jay-Z did in his video. Obama took Clinton's small town and beat it with dirt off your shoulder, recirculating Jay-Z. The crowd, which was multiracial, went wild when he made the gesture, seemingly knowing its significance and its source. After making the speech, pundits weighed in, reproducing the memes sped by the, uh, spread by the Clinton campaign and being quick to condemn Obama's gesture as further proof of his elitism. In doing so, they revealed how out of touch they were. Although at the time, Jay-Z was one of the most popular celebrities on the face of the earth, they didn't know he was the source of Obama's gesture. Right? So one of the ways I'm arguing that rap works there, and music in general, it works at kind of a subconscious register. So and, and it, it works at both re, at, the ledger, uh, at the register of affect, that is your kind of emotion, and reason. So, in, so he could have responded to that moment by making a long, kind of tired political claim about how he was just as legitimate as, as the other candidates were, but that single move communicates volumes. Indeed, when I said it to the audience, you guys kind of laughed because you got it, right? It's like that's all he had to kind of do. He didn't have to do any talking. He didn't have to alienate any voters. That move was like classic, right? But at the, So he actually uses hip-hop and rap in some ways to bind himself to voters in general, but then he uses it to bind himself to black voters in particular. But the challenge there is that even as he uses it to bind himself to black voters, if you actually look at his rhetoric and his policies, even through this moment, maybe up until like a couple of weeks ago, when he started to talk about uh, unemployment and jobs seriously in part as a result of, of Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Baltimore. His policies in some ways actually 
hurt black populations. But the fact that he was able to use rap and hip hop so, um, so expertly allowed him to kind of dodge those critiques, right? So that's kind of the case of Obama. Um, how many of you are familiar with Kwame Kilpatrick? Kwame Kilpatrick is the former mayor of Detroit, Michigan, the most important city on the face of the planet. The people here know me, know I had, knew I had. Katrina told you it was coming. She told you it was coming. So Kwame was elected to a great deal of fanfare. He was, at the time, the youngest um, black mayor, uh, youngest mayor in the history of Detroit. And he was so, if he had, if he had just stayed the course, we, there's an argument that can be made that given changes uh, in the ability of, or the willingness of, of white populations to vote for, uh, for non-white candidates, he could have become something other. But because of a number of mistakes, he, was, um, he ended up having to leave office. He actually ended up spending time in jail. In fact, he's giving a talk tonight at Empowerment Temple up the street because he just got out of jail, and now he's trying to kind of revitalize himself, and he has a book to, um, book to sell. So what I want to do now is read a passage from my chapter on Kwame Kilpatrick, and then after that, I'll, I'll try to kind of wrap up and begin our conversation. Uh, I'm going to begin by talking about his predecessor. In 2001, Detroit Mayor Dennis Archer Sr. announced that he would not run for a third term. Supporters were worried that the next mayor would erase all the gains made during Archer's administration, a concern heightened when Archer did not anoint a successor. Archer had successfully negotiated deals to bring in a variety of high-profile events and developments into Detroit, including the Major League Baseball 2005 All-Star Game, the 2006 Super Bowl, and three Las Vegas-style casinos. After Archer decided not to run, several individuals announced their candidacies. After the primary election, only two were left. City Council President Gil Hill, 69 years old, and State Representative Kwame Kilpatrick, 31 years old and son of Congresswoman Carolyn Cheeks Kilpatrick. Up against a competitor less than half his age, Hill, best known for his portrayal of Eddie Murphy's stern boss in the Beverly Hills Cop series, tried to make the election a matter of age and experience versus youth. Kilpatrick's campaign, on the other hand, successfully made the campaign about passing the torch and making a decision to commit to Detroit's future, right here, right now. Appearing against Hill in the mayoral debates, Kilpatrick appeared young and virile. I, I talked about this. So I knew Obama was going to beat McCain like he stole something. Um, when I looked at the debates between him and McCain, and I just turned the sound off, right? You turn the sound off, and you see this young guy who's really charismatic, and he moats through the, through the screen versus this old guy who, because of the, you know, the, the wounds he, he, he received during the Vietnam War, he can't even walk correctly, right? I'm like, okay, he's going to beat somebody like he stole something. It was a similar dynamic going on to this election. When Kilpatrick beat Hill in the general election with 40% more turnout from 18 to 40-year-old voters becoming Detroit's youngest mayor ever, some political observers thought it was the dawn of a new era. Kilpatrick quickly became known, became known as the hip-hop mayor because of his age and personal style. During his first term, Kilpatrick wore diamond earrings and flashy suits and drove a Lincoln Navigator. But he was also commended for his ability to run one of the largest cities in the country. 
and was lauded by news magazines across the nation. Inspired by Kilpatrick's election, the comedian and actor Chris Rock created the movie Head of State about a young D.C. alderman who ends up running for president. Supporters held several events for, Kwame's for Kilpatrick's inaugural. The first, the first event was Stayed. It was Stayed. Jesse, you're going to know. S-T-A-I-D. Is it Stayed or like Stayed? It's Stayed. Okay. It's one. You know, you write, le you write words. Like I wrote this, but I never said Stayed out loud. I just knew what it meant, right? So Stayed. It was held in the GM building, an architectural symbol of Detroit. The attire was formal, there was little to no dancing, and people spent most of their time talking to one another about business opportunities afforded by the new administration. Kilpatrick spent most of his time moving from suite to suite, where his most prominent supporters were ensconced, away from the crowd. When Kilpatrick finally appeared before the crowd, he spoke in measured tones of the future and of the plans he had for the city and its residents. He spoke about making Detroit the city of the 21st century and about bringing that campaign slogan right here, right now, to life. The second inaugural was different. Because I was here at the second inaugural, so check this out. So the second inaugural, he's got, so inaugurals are kind of niche events, right? They're, because you've got a number of different classes of supporters, and you want to have these events for these different niches, so each niche can feel like they're connected to you. So the last event was held at the Charles H. Wright Black History Museum, and it was for the young black professional, right? So some of Detroit's best and finest young folk uh, were there dressed in everything from gaiters and purple suits. That's the working class Detroit professional. They look, I can't rock that, but they look really, really good in it. To people like me, like, I mean, straight up, from the ballers and shot callers to straight up professors and lawyers. Um, because that was kind of the young party, you had a number of people spinning, uh, DJing. Right, a number of different musical forms, right? House music, hip hop, a little bit of everything. You had like three or four DJs building up to the big time guy. And the big time guy was a guy, his name is Biz Marquis. Biz Marquis was himself a big time MC back in the 80s, but now he's kind of making his career as a DJ, right? So Kwame Kilpatrick comes near the end while Biz Marquis is spinning, and Biz Marquis starts spinning his own stuff. Right? He starts spinning his own stuff, and we all know the words. I mean, we're singing the words with him. You, he sings just like that. He, he's a bad singer. Got what I need. You, you say he's just a friend, but you say she's just a friend. Oh, baby. So we're all singing this, and we're horrible, but we're all singing this, right? He comes in at that moment. Now, if you think about Dennis Archer um, Sr., his counterpart, and older than us by like 20 or 30 years, in that moment, what he probably would have done is let Biz Marquis did his thing and then just kind of, you know, wave to the crowd. What Kwame did was something different. He walked up to the mic, took it, and started singing, right? He started singing because he knows the words. He went to the clubs like we did. He went to Cheeks. He went to the Music Institute. He went to St. Andrew's Hall, right? So we see this. We see him singing, and I swear to God that up until that moment, it was the most powerful political moment I'd ever had in my life because it was like Detroit had had black mayors before going back to 73 so electing a black mayor was nothing to us but electing somebody who was one of us it's like oh my god that is we well, we run the city it was words cannot express right and that's the thing that led him to victory and that's the thing that led him 
to create a, a, a connection between young voters, right? But when he's actually, when he actually takes that moment and becomes governor, when he actually, not governor, you know what I mean, but when he actually starts governing the city, the policies he uses are almost exactly the same as the policies of his predecessor, right? So if he was the hip hop mayor, what, how would you expect you spending to, to, how would you expect you spending to rise or fall? Would you expect it to rise or you'd expect it to fall? You'd expect it to rise because he's the hip hop mayor, right? What would you expect to happen to certain forms of police spending? Would you expect it to rise or you expect it to fall? You'd expect it to fall, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's hip hop from which we get the song F the police, right? No, that's not what we see, right? We see police spending actually increase a bit. You spending, which was never really high in the first place, actually drop a bit. Now, to be fair, Detroit is facing particular constraints. The subtitle of the book is The Limits of Black Politics. Detroit is facing particular constraints that he has to navigate as mayor. But in time after time, not only does his policies, but his rhetorics actually reproduce this dynamic by which poor black populations are basically forced to operate as if they had a foot on their neck and relatively well-off black populations are actually expected to perform, or are given the opportunity to perform well and given the opportunity to make more money, right? So what I do is I talk about those um, individuals, I talk about a couple of hip-hop organizations, and then I talk about the degree to which even the lyrics of some of your gangster rappers kind of reproduce that same basic dynamic. And then what I do is I run a couple of, ex I run an experiment and do some survey research in order to see what the effect is of listening to rap and being exposed to rap on folks' attitudes. And what I find is that if, for example, you show people videos of 50 Cent, who's a big time uh, gangster rapper, versus videos of Public Enemy, on the other hand, or nothing, people tend to, it has kind of a neutering effect. There's all types of, 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 of of urban phenomenon that they're less willing to think of as being problems in their neighborhood than if they're exposed to other things. So that's kind of, that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's a bit more interesting than the way I described it, but what I wanted to do was to begin a set of conversations within, black within scholars who study black politics. I wanted them to begin to take uh, the problem of intra-racial inequality seriously. Again, there are black people without, with a whole bunch of stuff, black people with just a little bit of stuff, and then there are black people with nothing. I want them to begin to take that seriously because it affects the politics of cities like Detroit and cities like Baltimore and us as a whole. And then I wanted us to think of um, a wider range of phenomenon as political. So on that note, I really, really appreciate you guys for coming. I was, I've never done anything like this before, and I was trying to game you know how many people were coming. I was all set for it to be me, Katrina, Riedel, and Neil, and then a couple of my fraternity brothers and Jesse. But I'm so glad that you all came, and um, hopefully, what I've given you is enough for us to have a really rich conversation. Thank you very much. <laughs> Mitchell. And Harold Cruz's book, The um, Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, um, which is a very um, extensive 
cultural analysis of um, everything in the United States. Um, one of his main points was that the black community had everything already in it. It's already in the community itself. And one of the main problems is that black people, the only thing we really create now is culture. And one of the main problems with that is that we don't respect culture, our culture enough to exploit it. So we let everybody else exploit it. So he uses the Harlem Renaissance as a barometer for a black aesthetic. And one of the things he says, he says, we shouldn't even fight America. It's going to dive its own weights, but we should continue to build our own institutions, build our own institutions. But the problem with that is that we will constantly compromise, assimilate, and lose power. And one of the prime examples that I think of that is Henry Louis Gates saying that he was going to build a black think tank, endowed think tank. But somehow that gets absorbed and gets compromised and connected with hip hop. If we had continued with this black aesthetic and this sense of consciousness, then we would have a place where academia, when hip hop happened, because there would have been a long aesthetic journey and continuum, that we would have embraced that along with jazz and all the other things and saw the continuum. Because when you look at hip hop and you go historically and you look at films and everything from Africa, you see them break dancing, the rhyme, you hear the whole oral tradition, all of that. But because we have so fragmented and not believed enough to exploit our culture, then somebody else is always taking care and compromising it. So um, there's a lot there. So I'll, I'll take a little bit of it, right? Um, so what Harold Cruz argues is that the central problem facing black people is that we do not own the means of cultural production and that we should work harder to own the means of cultural production at a community level because that would give us more agency over our product and we can more able use popular culture as the vehicle by which we could change our identity and change the American identity in general, right? That's kind of the, the argument that, that he's making there. I want to say, um, so first I have to get the critique out the way. The critique, the problem with that book is that he focuses on Harlem rather than Detroit, right? Now, given what I said earlier, I mean, it sounds kind of funny, but I'm serious. I mean, so if you think about Harlem, Harlem was politically incomplete. There is no, you know, there is no real industrial working class. And if you think about the changes that were made from, say, the 30s to around the 70s, you need kind of a black working class of a certain sort to make that possible. Harlem doesn't really have that. So it's no, it's no um, coincidence that it's Detroit that the Nation of Islam is founded. It's Detroit that the Shrine of the Black Madonna is founded, right? So that's, that's one thing. But as far as the cultural thing, I think he's actually, I think he's right. And one of the challenges that rap and hip hop faces now is that we have to, it's become this huge global beast. And actually that's one of the reasons why, another reason why it's important. People use hip hop and rap everywhere from here to Egypt to Tunisia to France. I mean, it's exploded. I remember in the early 80s reading a Detroit Free Press columnist who isn't here anymore um, talk about how rap was going to die off by 84, right? He died before rap did, because I think he died in like 86, 87, right? Um, 
So there is something to be said about reining it in and using it and deploying it in a way that we can um, not that gives us the ability not only to elect a black president, but to change what it means to be American and to change how America operates politically and culturally. But with that said, that has to be connected to political and economic change. It's not, I don't believe, even though I talk about popular culture, I don't think culture is the driver. Culture can work, but it has to work with something. It, it, it's not that we, if we just change our culture, you know, if we just like change our name and start wearing African stuff, the world isn't going to change. We have to politically organize. Lionel, thanks for coming. Nice suit. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. And um, you, you might have touched on this a bit at the end of your, your last comments, but I wonder if in the book you look at the relationship between cultural productions like music and, and you know, other economic outcomes for people in general. Because I could imagine that for black people, you know, hip-hop is so fraught, we may place so much weight on it, but do you step back and look at other musical genres and what other groups were, were or were not able to achieve through that type of cultural production? Um, I, I deal with it obliquely, but I'd really deal with it more along the lines of Mitchell's comments. So there's a political economy that, um, that you have to kind of talk about when you're talking about black cultural uh, production. And when I talk about political economy, I just mean who owns what, right? So in the case of rap and hip hop, what's happened over the course of 30, 40 years, and there are a number of people in this room who know what I'm about to talk about, and there are some younger folks in the room, like y'all and probably <laughs> you, who don't know. No, not you. Man, people wanting to be younger than what they are. I hate that. Um, so there was a moment in 1980, right, where if you traveled from Baltimore to Atlanta and turned a radio station on, you'd be hearing very different stuff. Right? They would play very different songs. The DJ you were listening to was somebody who was a member of that community and was talking about issues of importance or not to that community. You don't, you know, so I'm also interested in uh, like techno. For those of you who don't know, techno was actually created in Detroit. And there was uh, one or two DJs that were responsible for the creation of techno, right? Local guys who could play whatever they wanted. You listen to a radio now and then go to Atlanta, are they going to be playing the, the different, uh, different of the same stuff? The exact same stuff. And the DJ is not going to be from here. Maybe if you're lucky, the DJ is from here. But definitely the morning time person isn't going to be from here. Like the morning time, what, uh, when I listen to, what, Tom Joyner? Um, I don't know where Tom, Tom Joyner moves, right? He, like, moves around. There's Tom Joyner, Steve Harvey, right? There are a bunch of national faces that are attached to these dynamics. And that's because a smaller number of national corporations are starting to own and control radio stations, both black and non-black. And then also you're talking about them owning and controlling the, um, the, um, the record labels. So to the extent I deal with cultural production and economics, what I talk about in that last chapter is the degree to which this narrowing of, of ownership ends up narrowing political options in some ways. And although I don't make a strong argument for it in the conclusion, in part because the book is trying to do a different thing, one of the things that it's up to us to do is really fight hard for local radio, for local public radio, 
and other options like it, given that we have something like the internet. I think I can speak loud enough, but if you could elaborate a little bit on the connection between hip-hop and neoliberal. Oh, oh thank you. Because um, that, that's yeah, yeah. really yeah. very critical, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for asking that question. So if you take the figure of the hustler, right, the hustler plays a very specific role in rap music throughout, in rap music production, throughout its history, but particularly, like, after the late 80s. You see people consistently referring to themselves as hustlers. A lot of people are involved in the drug trade. What they're doing, if you listen to the lyrics, is that they're taking ideas about neoliberalism in general, which suggests that you need to be in, uh, involved in the process of lifelong learning. You need to be consistently building your human capital. I was in New York City two Saturdays ago. And I end up hooking up with one of my favorite undergrad students from uh, Washington University of St. Louis, my previous employer. She had just started a job, two weeks into her job. She was already trying to figure out how she could build her capacity for her next job, right? She wasn't thinking about quitting, and she wasn't thinking that she would be fired, but she was like, yo, I have to hustle. I have to figure out you know, what type of skills I can get in order to get this next job. It, that's the thing now. It's like we're all consistently working, consistently working, consistently working. We're hustling, we're grinding. That's the thing that you have a lot of MCs talk about. Only they're not talking about industries that we think of as being legitimate. What they're talking about is, uh, what they're talking about is the drug trade, right? So along these lines, when they talk about the police, for example, the police ends up being kind of a regulatory burden, kind of the same ways Republican talks about big government. Right? I mean, that's how they talk about it, right? And then, just like the neo, so the neoliberal turn requires, it kind of requires uh, a population of losers, right? Because in, in a competition, you got winners and losers. And now this is determined by the market. The only way that winning-losing process works because when you lose under neoliberalism, you really, really, really lose, right? The only way that really works is if you're talking, if, if, if we believe that losers are there because it's their own fault, right? Now, the way, now race works in that. Right? I talk about racial politics. Race works in that. So the reason why, up until very recently, we've accepted that turn is because those losers happen to look a certain way, right? They happen to look a certain way, right? Now, that same dynamic is actually present within rap. Only, you know, only you're talking about largely black subjects talking about other black subjects. So they cast the same type of aspersions against people on welfare, against people who are poor, against people without the ability to hustle as their, uh, as their counterparts in the kind of, kind of sort of mainstream world do. So when I talk about rap in a neoliberal turn as far as the lyrics, I'm talking about the way that they really emphasize this market logic and the way they cast dispersions on black populations who are unable to fit and unable to hustle and grind. Yes, it's, it's, um, it's reproducing it in some problematic ways, right? Now, now, it's, now preserving and even reproducing is kind of, um, it's kind of fuzzy, right? Because 
even as I critique the policies, somebody like President Obama being in office, being in office is transformative in a certain way. And I believe that that comes from hip hop, right? Somebody like, even like a Jay-Z being able to actually buy the New Jersey, a small portion of the New Jersey Nets. That's something that's different. But yet and still, you know, class-wise, it, it does reproduce that thing. That one, you got the mic? Yeah, my, um, I'm interested in knowing your thoughts about the old guard versus the new guard. I think that we hit a very interesting mark with the um, Martin Luther King Jr. monument. I want to say in 2000, February of 2009, I went to the Asala conference, and Earl Graves was the keynote speaker. And he talked about all of the problems in um, African American urban urban environments, and he cited um, hip hop music yeah. and the government's failure to respond to everything that happened to Vietnam with heroin and everything as yeah. the the biggest reasons for all of the problems in the black community. Clear and present danger. Yeah. Specifically with African American males. Mm -hmm. So my question is, do you think that the old guard is ever going to come forward and embrace um, hip hop? Uh, well, of course, because, now this is the funny thing. So we still talk about hip hop like it's this kitty thing. I'm 42, right? Chuck D is 50. I know that, the, that he's probably a car carrying member of the AARP now. The reason I know that is because they just start sending me cars like two years ago, right? So. The old guard is going to, at some point, because the hip-hop is going to be them, right? I mean, just they're going to, the, the old guy's going to generally die off. So the real question is not, I think the more, the more interesting question for me is not necessarily generational. The question is, is how, is how does whatever the cultural thing, that's the thing, how do certain black populations use that in order to truncate options for another black for other black populations, right? Because if you look backwards, we see the same dynamic with jazz. We see the same dynamic with the blues, right? Where you've got these people talking about. I remember, I think it was Carter G. Woodson. Carter G. Woodson is the person who's responsible for uh, for creating what we now know as Black History Month. I think it was Carter G. Woodson that when this had this long screed against jazz. Right? I mean, a number of a number of people like hated bebop. They thought that bebop represented represented like a backwards move. It's like back, black people want to be slaves again. Right. So that the question is is like how is, how does culture become a site by which you got one group of black people who want to be up here, and an, uh, and another group of black people are kind of clawing up, and then what does that fight look like? That's the question. Well, sir, I was asked to opine on something called keeping it real oh, uh, as it related yeah. to uh, what was happening in Philadelphia with Street and the current mayor in Philadelphia. Yeah. And one of the things I came away with, and I, I, I'd like for you to talk about that there is this, if you will, in the concept in the hip-hop vein, that keeping it real is one, either intelligence is not appreciated, and in addition to being, I think the new kind of appreciation is, oh, you've been to jail and you've overcome that. Can you talk about that? I don't know if you talked about that in the book, mm -hmm. about this concept of what is real and what is keeping real, if you will. So there's this fight 
And uh, thank you for that question, because it, it dovetails neatly from what um, my brother Edwin asked me. There's this fight um, over authenticity and realness in black populations. Right? Where is the true site of black identity? Right? So one group of people in pop culture best represented by somebody like Wynton Marcellus or Stanley Crouch argues that the real place of black identity is in black high culture, right? There's another group of black people best represented in pop culture by like MC, um, by MCs, or if we were to do a comedy, if we would jump and look at comedy, um, so Bill Cosby would be the high culture, Richard Pryor would be the low culture, working class culture. So, in, so it's, there's a fight between this high culture and low culture thing over who's the most, rep, who's supposed to be the legitimate voice within black communities, right? The whole idea of keeping it real is not necessarily about anti-intelligence because you've got to be really, really intelligent to be able to come up with off the rip, I'm sorry, that is off the cuff, extemporaneously rhymes that make sense and tell a story, right? You can't, you, if you try to do it, just try to do it. Just try to come up with something just, you know, while you're up there on the mic and people are looking at you. I can't do it. So it requires a certain type of mastery and intelligence. It's not necessarily people use that intelligence joint, but it's not really about that. What it's about is what is the legitimate site of black identity? Where should that voice come from? Now the challenge is that at both ends, what's real or what's legitimate is a construction, right? So there are a whole range of processes that we could think of or activities that black middle class folk engage in. A whole entire range, right? Is it keeping it? Is it legitimate that, um, to be in debt? You know, credit card debt up to your eyeballs, right? Is it legitimate to go to a church where you can go in there, where um, where the pastor um, asks you to basically give up your life savings, right? I mean, there are a whole number of aspects of that that exist in Black middle class culture, but for that for some reason we don't consider when we think of, you know, when Wynton Marcellus makes an argument for high culture. On the other hand, there are a whole set of black, poor, and working class processes and behaviors that we can, that, um, that are kind of left off the table, right? So when somebody like Easy e rhymes about Compton, Compton is not, I had no idea where Compton was before N.W.A., whose name I can't, it's N.W.A., I can't say it on the, on the mic. Um, I had no idea what Compton was on the map. But after his rap, the way he talks about Compton, Compton becomes a place where the only legitimate activity is violence, drug dealing, and drug consumption. But Compton's just like any other working class neighborhood. There's all types of stuff that goes on in there, right? It's, so there's a choice. There's something happening by which people take pieces and say, okay, this is the real thing. And if you're doing this, you're keeping it real. And if you're doing this other thing, you're not. And it's about how those ideas, how that real thing is constructed, and then how, in this case, it clashes against other class orientations. Yes. That's actually right. And that curation process is, we don't conceive, conceptualize that as being political, but it is. There are all types of choices. Well, oh, I want this. That, you can leave. Like when I talk about Detroit with love, there are a whole bunch of things I talk about. There are a whole bunch of things I discard on purpose, right? Is that process.
Um, in terms of what you talked about in terms of the, the limits of hip hop, and then you also talked about Kwame Kilpatrick having to give in to the politics of, um, of his predecessor, ex uh, explaining on you know, the political realities that you have there versus those expected of him through the politics expressed within uh, hip hop music and rap. Um, and then talking about the spirit of the hustler and supplanting that individual drive and motivation to become oneself's own industry. And you talked about uh, Jay-Z and being a business yeah. and him being the embodiment of a business. Within there is a conversation on economics and how can one supplement the economics that are there, like Jay-Z talks about selling drugs, to get to the point where he's now at, where he's talking about, wow, I have the presence number in my BlackBerry. Let's talk about real effort and utilizing those modes to get out. Not, not, not not so much as saying, okay, this is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but the whole mentality of the hustler to get to that next stage of economic evolution. Yeah. Um, understanding the limits of political reality that we now have, and, and, your, and your insight and, and your vision, how would you um, analyze that, that problem set in terms of economic realities, the closed economy of the drug trade, what are those sorts of next steps to look at as far as the evolution of that economic individualism? I should have never given you a mic. <laughs> um, oh, that's an excellent question. I think part of it involves actually, so there are things you have to do to survive and provide, right? Um, and the range of things that we have to do in some ways have, has expanded in bad ways, in some ways is truncated. So for example, I can no longer, if Hopkins fired me tomorrow, I could no longer go home to Detroit and have my dad get me a job at the plant, right? That option is foreclosed to me. You know, my brother works there, but it took him literally, at, I think it took him 10 years to get my younger brother in the plant. Where if this was 1965 or 1970, even given racism in Detroit, you know, if I, I, I'm, I do the right thing, you know, dad, my dad could have hooked me up. So in that way, you know, you think you've got things that, are, that have tightened up. But the other way, another way, things have expanded, right? So even though I'm 42, I know if Hopkins fired me tomorrow, I know, I know at least one or two people that I could give some money to, and then they can expand that through the drug trade, right? It's, it, it's like a phone call, like literally a phone call, right? So in some ways. My options have narrowed. In some ways, my options have expanded. Right? Um, and, that, and that's just life. That's just the way we are. That's just this time. That's just this moment we're in. The challenge, though, is that what we do and what we see in most MCs, if we see them just taking that milieu for granted, like this is the way we do it, as opposed to, at worst, you know, doing that thing and then engaging in critique, right? Engaging in critique. And so there are a few different states. So there, there's your guy who just does the thing and lauds it. Then there's your guy who does what he has to do and critiques it. And then there's your guy who critiques it and produces some other thing, some other way of being. So if we're just talking about hip-hop lyrics, not talking about political activism or anything like that. What we're talking about, what I'm arguing is required. I don't argue it in the book because I'm making a different claim. What's required is us to move beyond lauding this thing 
to, to, to engaging it to the degree we have to and critiquing it and then producing some other thing. Now, what does that other thing look like as far as economics? I would argue going back to the idea of owning the means of cultural production. If we just think about, this, is, this isn't a cure-all, but if we just think about the degree to which kids in Baltimore public schools produce beats for almost a living, right? So many of them, if you were to go in the classroom and just look, you'd see a few of them zoned out, you know, you see a few of them rapidly paying attention, and then you'd see some other people who are in some other place. I'm willing to bet that those other people are either tapping out beats, right, or writing rhymes, right? That's what they do. There's a whole economy there. There's a whole economy of local cultural production there that we let lie fallow, that nobody's speaking to. The only people who are kind of dealing with this are kind of local magnates who are basically picking and choosing to see which guy to give a deal from that'll basically put him in wage slavery, right? So what I would suggest that, that ha what I suggest has to happen is we have to somehow extend our conception of what a market looks like and then to the extent we can use existent, existing forms of cultural production to speak to that and then produce that. Lanille has kind of a, I'm sorry, I was going to say, because you're old school, I'll say you have volume as opposed to saying what else. Like I said, you, I was going to say you have, well, like I said. We're taping it for podcasts. First of all, thank you very much, Lester. And uh, I hope that one of the three copies of the book I buy tonight will also deal with a dimension that we haven't talked about yet, but I'm sure you have. We've talked about inequality and the orientation inside the black community internally directed. And that's uh, sex, gender, um, and the perception on the part of people who don't know hip hop well, who are derisive about it, that it is a form of sexual exploitation. Uh, could you, you know, just reflect on that with us for a few minutes? Yeah, so um, I dealt with that in a couple of different ways. So I talked about, um, about sexism in hip hop politics. So there are two political organizations I examine, the National Hip Hop Political Convention and the um, Hip Hop uh, Summit Action Network. And what you see in both of those organizations in very different ways is kind of this, this, this sexism, right? So in the case of the, in both, in, in both cases, when they construct issues that are of importance, right? So I talk about how the real is constructed. There are a number of political ills that are facing black communities, a whole number of them, right? The way by which some of these issues become important and some of them drop away is political. So, for example, we, a lot of us focus on affirmative action in college admissions. Yes, that is an issue. That is an issue, right? A sort of a supportive affirmative action of a beneficiary. But I would actually argue that something like HIV AIDS has a much greater effect on black capacity. Why is it that we don't talk about HIV AIDS as a black issue, right? So what I talk about in, to a certain extent is the way that the issues themselves become vehicles for, by which the needs of black women are kind of stepped on. I talk about how, the, how black women who are interested in organizing around these issues are dismissed in some ways. And then when I talk in the lyrics, I talk about the construction of a very specific form 
of black masculinity, right? So as you could tell, I'm really interested in construction. I believe that a lot of the stuff we take for granted is, the pro is itself constructed as a process of political contestation. What it means to be a man now, like my fraternity has four cardinal principles, manhood, scholarship, perseverance, and uplift. What it means to be a man in this specific time means something very different than what it meant to be a man in the early um, years of the 20th century. And there's been a whole lot of political stuff that goes around that. So I talk about the ways that a very specific form of black masculinity is kind of attached to running women, you know, to actually using sex as kind of a market. Right? So I, I talk about that. I don't deal with that in the depth that I could have, but I do talk about that. Was there a certain criteria you used for the different artists that you listened to and lyrics that you looked at, and why did you select certain artists? That is an excellent, excellent question. Brother Sidney Bailey, Phi Chapter. What year are you? <laughs> Phi Chapter 01. It's going to be in the, pi in the podcast. That's going to be out. And you listen to the podcast and be like, root to the cues, root to the cues, Phi Chapter. <laughs> um, so you've got lyrics, right? So I want to look at the lyrics. What are a few of the different ways that I can go about this, right? So one way is to cherry pick, right? It's like, wow, I really like Jay-Z. I really like uh, Public Enemy. I really like MC Light. I'm just going to look at them. That's not the way social scientists do it, right? Because it's kind of capricious. It's just like you're, you can't make any claims to a larger body. Another way to do it is just look at the popular stuff, right? But if you just look at the popular stuff, then there's this whole body of stuff that you're not necessarily going to get at, right? So what I did was um, a grad student, Travis Gosa, who's now a professor at Cornell, he was able to get uh, he was able to create a database of approximately, Katrina, correct me if I'm wrong, 20,000 lyrics? I mean, he, he combed it. Yeah, he, he, he created a robot that basically went to, the, went to the web and basically peeled the lyrics. He got a sample of literally tens and thousands. And what I did was I took what, what we call a simple random sample, right? So I took a random sample of everybody. So I end up with like, uh, 500 lyrics approximately between 1989 and 2004. That way I can make a set of claims about rap in general as opposed to popular rap or as opposed to the, the type of rap that I just happen to like. You know, I'm at the last question so we have time to sell books. Oh, and you sign know, I haven't book. thought about that. You know, that's I'm just a real here. important I, part. Whatever you tell me to do, I do. <laughs> Thank you for your presentation, Brother Dr. Spence. I look forward to reading your book. How can educators and teachers use hip-hop and rap for student success? I did not pay him to ask that last question. So the one thing that I don't do in this book, because the book is trying to make a different set of claims, is I don't talk about how to use it. My thing is like, OK, just what does it do? Like taking kind of a social scientist approach, what does it do? How to use it. Right? So there's a brother, Pastor Heber Brown. I don't think he's in here. There's a group of people who are um, mobilizing against a Baltimore youth prison. There are plans to build a Baltimore youth prison to house youths that are charged as adults. I believe there's like $100 million put in the budget for that. 
And I remember I did, uh, I did some, I, I found out about it by, by happenstance. And I was thinking like, okay, how would we use hip hop to deal with this, right? So if we assume that people are already creating it in these spaces, that hip hop and rap are, is like the air that these kids breathe. That there are kids, again, particularly in schools that don't routinely send, send kids to Hopkins, right, or even a cop in a Morgan State. There are people making beats as we speak, writing rhymes as we speak, right? If we assume this stuff already exists, and it exists in a number of different spaces, how do we use that? All we have to do is kind of incentivize it to go in a certain direction. So a group of people, uh, including myself, Darius, somebody like Jay, a few people, in, other people in the audience, Zeke in the back from the intersection, we decided to get together and create a, pro uh, create a project that we're calling the Baltimore Mixtape Project, right? And what we're trying to do is draw attention to this issue using hip hop and rap. So it's simple. We're gonna have a contest, give cash prizes of 300, of 500, $300, $200 to the best rap, um, rap um, record and the best spoken word production, right? You've got to be a Baltimorean between the ages of, what, 13, and, we agree, 13 to 21? 13 to 21, and our goal is hopefully, once we put it in process, that we'll get literally dozens of submissions, and we got people in the schools to, to put this through, right? So we get the submissions, people vote on it, and then we're gonna have some contest, some public contest where people, where, where experts, I write about hip hop, I'm not a hip hop expert, will determine the winner, and then what we'll do is create mixtapes using their productions, and then just disseminate them, right? So the idea here is that you take this thing, you don't work against it, you work with it. It's already there, it's extremely powerful. You use it, you get the kids to use it, you get the kids to share it amongst each other. All it's about doing is attaching that thing that they already use to the content that you want them to, that you want them to learn or the content you want them to express. So if you're a history teacher, and you're teaching even something like the Roman or the Roman Empire. It's like, okay, how do we use this thing that people already use and consume to speak to that? So that's how that, in a nutshell, that's how you do it. Um, even if this project that my friends and I are working on ends up falling on his face, I don't think it will. But I think that the method that we're talking about is the correct method to use, not just for, not just for using hip hop and rap for specific means, but for using black popular culture in general to kind of change what it means to be black and to be American in these local spaces. On that, I really, really appreciate you guys all coming out. Uh, it's been a packed house, you, and, and I know it's hot. There's gonna be some time like later on tonight where I'm gonna start like weeping, given how many people actually came. But this is a really, really good look. Thank you very much.